Can your business afford to be the victim of business fraud? No one expects their business to be defrauded, especially not by a trusted employee. But in a recent survey by Kroll Inc., they found that 81% experienced fraud at the hands of an insider. What can you do to protect your business finances? My next guest, Andy Greenberg, has some tips and strategies. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Brought to you by Business MO, LLC. Andy Greenberg is the founder of Defend Analytics, LLC. He's a successful serial entrepreneur who's founded or run four different companies and has had three successful exits with sales of the business to a strategic partner. Andy earned his undergraduate degree from Hofstra University and an MBA from New York University. His current venture, Defend Analytics, is pretty interesting. It's an exciting new software-as-service company that provides and implements forensic accounting tools typically reserved for big business and makes them available to any size business on a subscription basis. They can run forensic accounting algorithms on your data in order to smoke out fraud and errors and omissions before it's too late. They work with you on the analytics side to help you identify red flags, as well as the process side to help you set up more bulletproof systems to deter fraud in the first place. Their goal is to help you establish best practices. Now, nobody plans on having their business defrauded any more than they plan on having a car accident today. But knowing it can happen, even in a small business, is exactly why I'm delighted to have Andy on the program. So welcome to Business Confidential Now, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Let's start with some just general ideas because, you know, people don't expect it to happen in their business. They think their employees are like their family and everybody gets along and things are going well. How common is fraud in small or mid-sized businesses? Um, it's extremely common, very unfortunate, and it is the trusted employee who is often the cause. Just because you think your employees are like family doesn't mean necessarily your employees agree. Sometimes there are hurt feelings. Sometimes there are there's a sense that they were underpaid or underappreciated. But more often than not, it's a case where the employee has them, gotten themselves into some trouble or a family member or a friend, and there's often a feeling that if I help my friend out, I take a few bucks here, I can pay it back quickly to the company, and no one will ever be the wiser. And unfortunately, it ends up, it, it rarely ends up like that. It tends to go on and on, and the employee digs a deeper and deeper hole and until it becomes a problem for everyone involved. So what types of fraud happens? I mean... How do they do this kind of skimming? How does it typically show up? Uh, so it is most common in accounts payable fraud, but it is also fairly common in accounts receivable. Uh, so, And you find that there really aren't a lot of supervillains out there. If people are checking and keeping on top of their businesses, it it's much less likely. So a, a perfect example would be, an employee opening a bank account uh, of their own with a name sort of similar to the company name, grabbing checks, deposits, or wires depositing uh, the money into their own account, 
than issuing some kind of credit uh, or adjustment to the uh, vendor or uh, customer account to uh, to um, even out the books, depositing some of the money back in the company account, and everything balances. So that would be sort of a typical idea. Or sometimes they just take checks and write them to themselves, and again issue credits or adjustments, you know, to uh, level things out. So books tend to balance in these cases. So it's it's kind of hard to find. How big are these losses typically? Uh, the average loss in one of these frauds is about $120,000. And obviously, you're not getting anything for that money, so it goes right to, out of the bottom line. Uh, if it's upper management in a bigger company, there is a good 20% of the frauds that are a million dollars or more, uh, but the average fraud is $120,000. And you think, you know, what that would do to a smaller mid-sized business, a third of bankruptcies are caused by uh, these kind of frauds. Now, the thing is, though, these, you know, $120,000 doesn't just disappear in, in one week or a month or a quarter. Over what period of time do these things typically happen? Yeah, that's a very good point. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, they usually come on slowly. Uh, three years is not atypical. And, you know, one thing we say in the analytics business, this is what the data um, shows, is that by using analytics, you can reduce the size of the fraud by two-thirds and the time to finding it by about the same amount. And the reason that we can't uh, eliminate the frauds entirely is it takes some time for the information to show up in the data. Uh, So... They go on for a while. It takes a while to find them, and they often come. They often show up when an employee resigns. Uh, that's when it can turn up. Uh, so, but I would say three years is not atypical. You can pretty much expect that. So, without Sometimes analytics, more. they they typically go unnoticed. Is that is that pretty much the pattern that it takes? Um, they go unnoticed for a much longer time. There's Mm -hmm. sort of a Ponzi aspect to this, where employees have to steal more and more and do more and more to cover their tracks. So they often do turn up. But by the time they've turned up, they become much more devastating. So three times the time and three times the cost. But they often do turn up just because it becomes impossible to hide that level of money after a while. But you almost never get the money back is the other problem. It's not like if you confront the employee, the money comes right back. Usually that money has been spent for, you know, it could be anything from a drug problem to there was a case where a gentleman embezzled $800,000 to build up his uh, dollhouse collection. So the money could be for anything, but it's usually pretty much gone. Pretty much gone. Hmm. Well, Pretty much. Let's talk about what steps a company could take. You know, I mean, a lot of our listeners are growing companies. They're trying to set up the right systems, do the right things, so they don't wind up in this situation. I remember from my experience way back, we had somebody defrauding the company, and it turned out that they had previously been convicted of that. So if somebody had done a good HR search, a background search, that conviction would have shown up. But 
not everybody is like a career criminal in these situations. So no, mostly what, not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what steps can a company take to be proactive? Can you give us two or three best practices? Uh, sure. We do actually have a list of, I think, 23 on the website you can find. But and, and yes, procedures are super important. So we believe that to stop fraud, you know, it's a combination of analytics and procedures. But some things and some of these procedures are super obvious and people don't do them anyway. So, for example, you want to check you want to check all new vendors. You want to check all vendors that all of a sudden have a large increase um, in business with you. You want to make sure you have multiple people signing checks. You want to make sure that the person that enters the accounts receivable and the accounts payable is not the person that signs the checks. So those are just a couple. And actually, um, some of these are so obvious and still don't happen. So new vendors, new customers, large vendors, large customers, large changes. And, um, you know, that would take you a long way. And then multiple people, and I know this is hard in a small company because sometimes you don't have multiple people. So multiple people handling the books. No one super trusted bookkeeper slash finance person. If you do anything, that's the one thing you have to watch for. Those are all super tips. Yeah, You mentioned a second ago that you've got 23 best practices identified on your website. What would be the, the link to that? Because I want to be able to add this to your episode page. Okay, so it's easy. You can find it at dfnd.net. That's how we spend, spell defend over here. So it's Donald Frank Nancy Donald. And I apologize to some for using Donald, but just came to mind. All right. Very good. Very and good. it's .net. If you go to .com, you'll end up with um, dust masks, which also could be helpful in your business. So. <laughs> it's not from us. Understood. Understood. Well, all the more reason. Come over to uh, businessconfidentialradio.com, and we will have the link so that there will be no confusion about .net, .com, .anything, because we want you to be able to access these best practices and nip these things in the bud, for sure. How big does a company need to be before putting some of these things in place? What's your recommendation? Well, first of all, I mean, if you're setting up a new company, put them in place right away. It's much easier because at the beginning, none of your employees will feel like it is aimed at them and that you're suspicious. They are just procedures in place. You come into the office, everybody knows to do them. In truth, you know, if you're truly a mom and pop, that level, you know, if you are the person writing every check, placing every order, talking to every customer, you can probably get away without this. But once you grow beyond this, but beyond that size, you really need to um, be concerned about this and protect yourself. And again, the earlier you put this in place, the better everyone's going to feel about it, the more naturally it's going to look, and the better it's going to work. So we're currently talking to companies from small medical practices to Fortune 500s, to give you some idea. So once you get past mom and pop, it's pretty much everybody. Well, you know, even for the solopreneur, if there is a tendency or 
the feeling that, you know, well, it's all my business. I can just take some grocery money out for this week and that and, and so forth. If they have any kind of incorporation, any type of form outside of a proprietorship, they may actually be jeopardizing it by doing that because they're not keeping their finances separate. And that could cause the corporate veil to be pierced. So yet another reason for trying to just put the right practices in place, even if you are a solo because one day maybe you won't be a solo anymore. It will grow and get bigger and bring other people in so that you can do some other things besides everything. <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So now you mentioned the analytics side. Do company need some kind of minimum number of transactions before it makes sense to do something like that? What's the story, Andy? Okay, that's impressive because when we started, we didn't even recognize that. And the answer is yes. There's a certain size, there's a certain amount of data that you have to feed into the algorithms before they really make sense. 500 transactions, four to 500 transactions a month is really what you need to have. Some of the tests make really good sense. Otherwise, they won't fit the curse. You won't be able to tell an outlying transaction from a normal transaction. So there are some tests where you need that level of data. Some of our tests are super simple, and they will work with next to no data. For example, we look at transactions that have occurred on weekends and holidays. So it's one of the world's simplest tests and incredibly effective. There's two kinds of employees that can be coming in and working on weekends and holidays. One is your very best dedicated employees. They are coming in on weekends and holidays, making sure you're getting work, their work done. The other group are the fraudsters who are coming in to cover their tracks. So that will show up with essentially you know, one transaction. There's a reason major banks make their employees take two weeks of holidays in a row. It's so fraud and embezzlement can show up and they can't cover it. So some tests, yes. There's a minimum number of transactions, and some tests will work with one transaction. Interesting. Well, what are the most common mistakes that you've seen people make when it comes to the whole area of being preventive about fraud? I mean, besides just ignoring it altogether or recognizing it could happen to them. The number one thing people do is trust one person with too much power. I, you know, it's so easy. One person learns the software. This person's been with you for years. You can never imagine that person defrauding you. It is not breaking up the, the business procedures over a number of people. No one should place an order, collect a check, write the check, pay the bills, handle the banking, you know, unless it's really you. And as you say, even then, you know, you can, there's errors will, can be made and things don't turn up, but that's the number one thing to do is just make sure you've broken up the procedures. It's one thing, if you're the sole owner and you're using the company funds as your personal piggy bank, I mean, it's not a good thing to do from a legal perspective, but after all, it is your business, but you don't certainly want an employee to do that. So if you don't have very many employees, what would be the first thing you'd want to be able to have more than one person have eyes on out of all of these little moving parts? Cash. So, and whether it's cash in the form of checks and wires or cash literally in the form of cash, that's the first thing. And, you know, there are 
One of the reasons that um, we find medical practices having issues is because the, uh, well, in my mind, this is my uh, conjecture, that the person who owns and runs the business often does not have a financial background and is busy, busy with their patients all day. So they put someone in charge, and even if they're trying to do the right thing, you know, they will take the books at the end of the week, day, month, or year, and they will spot check. If they're doing more than most people, they'll say, show me the backup for this invoice. Show me where we paid it. Show me anything related to it. That's good practice. The problem is it's spot checking. So one of the things that we do is, and sort of the main thing we do is we point out the transactions that are less likely or unlikely to have occurred in the normal course of your business. So we send this to you, then you go to your bookkeeper, your finance person, your accountant, your whomever, and you say, show me the background for this transaction and this transaction. And again, they may be completely legitimate transactions. They are just less likely to be legitimate transactions. So the spot checking is important and Specific checking, much more helpful and much more likely to get to the root cause of the problem if there is one. You also obviously get the, um, the deterrent effect, like putting an alarm system, uh, the sign for an alarm system on your lawn. Really, no one really knows whether you have the alarm system, how it works, where it works, whether it's turned on, but just the fact that you have it acts as a deterrent to malfeasance. And so spot checking works the same way as what you're saying? Spot checking, spot, if, if your employees know you're going to be checking the books, they are less likely to mess around with the books. Okay. Those are some words to live by. <laughs> it's interesting that you, you pointed out medical practices, because I have a friend of mine whose husband has a medical practice, and some years ago he wound up getting defrauded by an office manager who was also involved with hiring other doctors to bring into the practice, because they were growing quite a bit. And... She was skimming off the books and buying herself expensive cars, expensive wardrobe. I think she might have even had some plastic surgery done. And, you know, even though they wound up suing her and taking her to court, they wound up losing the case, believe it or not, because she claimed she needed it in order to do the recruiting for the business. So it was part of her job responsibility. Don't ask me why that wound That's up. That's pretty like good. That. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's exactly. But I mean, it goes to show you, you just, you just never really know. Are there any right. other types of vertical industries I mean, besides banking or businesses that are in the money business that come to mind that might be more prone to attracting this type of employee or encouraging this type of behavior? I think anyone on the manufacturing side, uh, it's just a lot easier to pull off if you have lots of suppliers, uh, you know, supplying pieces of equipment or, you know, uh, tools, anything with, you know, a large number of smaller invoices or a business with a large number of customers. So a lot of the mail order businesses where you have a lot of small customers, it's just so hard to dig down and find the transactions that could be problematic. It ju you just open yourself up to it. And I think to some extent, this is a crime of opportunity, the money's sitting there, nobody's really checking. The more transactions, the more difficult it is to find. 
So lots of customers or lots of vendors in whatever industry you're in make it easier to pull off. So if you have your, if you just buy a couple of things from a couple of vendors, uh, I went to visit a company and they were in the uh, paint business and they basically bought cans, lids and handles. Okay. If you've got three suppliers, it's fairly easy to keep track of. If you've got 300 suppliers, it's not so easy. Very good. Well, besides that, having 300 suppliers for the same particular product, come on, you're not getting your purchasing power there. So another reason. To, well, it may uh, not be. It may not. Well, that's true, but it also may not be the same. Um, the same product. I worked in the medical device industry for a long time, as you know, and I was in ophthalmics, and we made surgical systems, and each system had thousands of parts, and there were parts we manufactured from a metal bar. There were parts we bought finished, and it was just, it was difficult, difficult to keep track of. Interesting. You just mentioned again your prior experience, and I think it's interesting that you're a serial entrepreneur. I find that fascinating. Could you share with us one of the things that's influenced your professional development, your career choices, your path? Sure. So there have been a, a number of influences, and I didn't know where my career was ever going to go. I started as a school teacher, actually. My mother was a school teacher, and uh, her career path sort of went towards entrepreneurship also. And so in some ways, I think she was my biggest influence. She saw a need for educational uh, materials. Maybe you remember seeing this when you were in schools. There were films, there was software, there were records. And she went from being a school teacher to being a professor of education to being an entrepreneur producing the material. And in fact, um, when I was a kid, I was on a lot of those records that sometimes you would hear in school, taking the whole family as part of the business. And she sort of was my number one inspiration, regardless of where you start, you know, sort of there's an entrepreneur in many, if not all of us. So I would say she was my biggest influence. That's terrific. I've found as I've been interviewing serial entrepreneurs in particular, that they come from some type of entrepreneurial family. So it's it's not a surprise. And applaud your mom and your family for having instilled that in you. Good for you, because you're bringing other ideas into the marketplace and helping to make them happen. So that's terrific. Can I add one, one um, sorry about one article I read that sort of started me on the analytics path? Do we have time sure. for this? Yeah. So the, as you know, I'd run a number of small and mid-sized businesses, and there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago about one of the forensic tests, which is sort of famous in the forensic world and not famous anywhere else, called Benford's Law, which I won't go into in depth here unless you absolutely insist. And I realized that I had run all of these companies and I had never heard of this. It's uh, a mathematical way to look at many, many different sets of numbers, and it will tell you whether the numbers, again, were likely to have been created in the normal course of your business or have been manipulated. And I said this was fascinating. I was surprised I had never heard of it. It's a common forensic tool, and that sort of started me on the road to defend analytics, actually, that article in the Wall Street Journal. It's amazing where the seeds of new ideas come from, right? Absolutely. I really like that you're making these tools available to smaller companies. 
and not just the big boys, because if a small company doesn't make it to a certain size, it's going to be tough if they get hit with fraud, because it can be fatal, and that's no fun. Uh, It just takes some goods and services out of the economy that probably could help some folks. So I like preventive measures. A third of bankruptcies, that's the amazing statistic. A third. Well, you know, the thing is... A third. So many operate on a knife edge. They don't have big reserves. And so when something bad happens, whether that's fraud, whether that's a lawsuit, whether that's a key employee leaving that they don't have backup for, it's painful and it sets back growth. It sets back productivity. And being able to put some systems in place is is just great insurance policy. Absolutely. We're just about out of time. And this has really been very eye-opening. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Just to sort of recap, whether you use Defend Analytics or you don't, put procedures in place, check your books, you know, and I hate to say this, and you can trust your employees, you should trust your employees, but you have to double check. That's all I can say. And we're happy to help if you want us to help, but put procedures in place. Very good. I remember one famous U.S. president saying, trust but verify. (laughs) Yes. Or as every poker would say, trust, but, you know, we're going to cut the cards anyway. (laughs) Touche. Exactly. It's about being smart and not being blind and uh, an ostrich. So, Andy, thank you so much for your time and for giving us some insight into this area that I know people don't like to think about because they don't expect it to ever happen to them. But being forewarned is forearmed, and these are certainly some good practices and strategies that they can put in place. We're definitely going to put a link to the website where they can access these 23 best practices that you identified and hope that they at least put a few of them to use because that will just make their business that much stronger and more sustainable. So thanks so much for what you do and your time. Hannah, thank you very much for what you do and your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then, 